right, cool. Everybody, thank you for listening. Today, I am talking with Nicholas Scalise. He is the founder of Earnworthy, a marketing agency specializing in landing pages, automations, email outreach, and audits. He has a very long CV as well. He's also the founder of Growth Marketer, a newsletter that has over 5,000 subscribers that grew in a very short period of time. And he is the host of the Growth Marketing Toolbox podcast. Nicholas, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Great to be here, Benjamin. Yeah, really excited to have you on. Thanks for making the time. I think it's uh, early in the day for you. I'll jump right into the questions. So today I wanted to talk a little bit about landing pages because this is something you have a lot of content on and you've developed a particular framework. Do you mind sharing a little bit about the origin of the framework? Like where did it come from? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I've been building landing pages since about 2013, 2014, having worked at agencies and seeing all the different ways that people approach this very common problem of how do you get people to to not only visit your website or landing page, but actually take action and buy a product or fill out a form. So that's the problem we were trying to solve. And I noticed that the common approach has been to look at a landing page as sort of a collection of of Lego blocks. I think we all are familiar with Legos as a kid or even as an adult. I, I still love Legos. And Stand so, um, yeah, there you go. We got, a, we got some Lego fans listening, hopefully. And so we see it as this collection of, well, you need a headline, you need a testimonial, you need a, a call to action. And that's good, it, but it's very surface level. And so what I wanted to do is sort of see what's behind that. What's the, what can we do that's further down into behavioral psychology and really f- try to figure out what makes people take action? Because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get them to take a specific action on that landing page. And so over the years, I've realized that all of the different issues that we've seen with why people don't take action, it really came down to about seven buckets or seven categories and I was able to, you know, just from working with hundreds of clients over the years, catalog all of that and put it into this nice framework with these seven questions. And basically, the, the idea is if you can answer seven questions, and, and we'll certainly cover them, you can answer these seven questions on your landing page through a variety of different ways, then you will be much more likely to get someone to take action because a lot of the questions are subconscious. So it's not like people are looking at your page and saying, oh, I, I need to know the answer to this. Some of it is subconscious, but these seven questions we have found based on all of the research we've done and all the clients we work with, they do a really good job of answering the issues that come up that prevent someone from taking action and they make it much more likely for them to continue forward. Awesome. So knowing that there are seven steps, provided that a product has product market fit, what's something they really need to have in place first? Would there be something that comes before the seven steps, for example, you know, knowing exactly what they want to offer or is there anything that they need to have squared before they begin? Yeah, that's a great question. So definitely you need to understand who your audience is. And, you know, saying you have product market fit is is amazing. But I feel that a lot of companies, they might think they have product market fit, but they don't truly have product market fit or they haven't dug into it more than just with a small test group that might be telling them what they want to hear. So, you know, the, the number one thing we see with our clients is, you know, we can build a beautiful landing page for them. We can put all this effort into defining who their audience is and and really perfecting the copy. But if the product or the service is not solving a specific need and it's not actually a good product or service, then it's going to fall flat. So I would say really dig into that product market fit. Make sure you have it. Make sure you understand your audience. And more so, if you have several audiences, don't try to group them all together when when we're building landing pages. Try to figure out if this is the specific persona for this page, 
It's fine if you're going to have other pages. And we have clients that have 10 different pages for 10 different personas or 10 different points in the buyer journey for three different personas. So you really have to figure out who's your audience and make sure that you have an amazing product or service because without that, everything that we're going to talk about is not really going to be that that effective. Just for a quick example, how would a potential client communicate this as an example? Would they say, you know, you know, we know we've got product market fit because X, Y, and Z. Okay, good. Let's go. Yeah, it's it's tough. You know, <laughs> you have to, it's sort of a catch-22, right? Because you have to put your product or service out there in order to see what the response is, but you need to have something to put out there in the first place to get that response. So this is a challenge that I think marketers and business owners face all the time. So, you know, it really comes down to following that product market fit roadmap that's already out there that a lot of people talk about of creating a, an MVP or a minimum viable product, putting it out into the world, seeing what the response is. And that's the key. You got to figure out what is the response? How do you measure that? And don't just measure the quantitative response. Like if you put out a product and you get, you know, a certain number of sales, that's the quantitative side, but figure out what's the qualitative side. What are people saying in the reviews? Are you doing one-on-one case studies and interviews and trying to get testimonials? So try to figure out the qualitative side to how that product or service has been engaged with. And it's only after you do that for a while, I would say for at least a few months, that you can gather enough data and enough insight to then say, you know, these are some of the challenges we're seeing. This is how we can improve the product or service. This is definitely who our audience is, or maybe we need to go even further down and be even more specific with our audience targeting. And only when you have all of that data, I think then it's the right time to start thinking about how you can optimize your landing pages. All right. What would be the first question that people should tackle? Yeah. So the first question in the seven question landing page framework, I call it the clarity question. And it's basically, do I understand the big idea? Because when we get to a landing page, we want to figure out what does this have to offer? What is it about? Right. Am I in the right place? Because most times people are clicking through from an ad or from an email and that ad or that email is making a promise, and we want to make sure that we are living up to whatever that promise is, so you don't want to confuse people. So this is where you want to take advantage of your headline, your above-the-fold section of the page, your imagery, maybe you have a hero image, maybe you have a product shot above the fold, and maybe you'll have a call to action. But all of that together is meant to answer this question of, do I understand the big idea? And you want to do that in a way that's clear. Don't use buzzwords. Don't waste text by saying, welcome to growthmarketer.com. Like that's, you know, that's, that's a wasted phrase. So get right into it. Be very clear and try to answer that clarity question of, do I understand the big idea? be interesting to hear your take on this. Maybe I've been a little bit uh, pessimistic on Twitter, but I've noticed there's a lot of sell the benefits, not the feature. And personally, I've noticed that sometimes it can actually lead to confusion because there's there's a lot of benefit selling which doesn't describe mm-hmm. the product. So I guess kind it would of vague. be a lack. Yes, yeah. it would be a lack of clarity. Is that something you've seen, or do you have a perspective on this? Yeah, and you know, there's just it, you have to figure out what's the what's the balance because it, the opposite is not going to be the answer, right? Don't just sell the features. I've seen clients do that, and it's we just had a client we were working with last week where. He sells software for a specific type of industry for barbers. And he's talking all about like two-way text messaging and, you know, things that a a barber is not necessarily going to care about. But if you say, hey, you can communicate with your clientele in an efficient way using text messaging, you know, that so that you can get a response right away, even if you're unavailable because you have another client in the chair right now, 
that's a way where, you know, now I'm mentioning the feature. I'm mentioning there's a two-way text messaging component. I know that there's some technology involved, but I'm also mentioning the benefit of, you know, at the end of the day, what I want to do is I want to be responsive to my clients and I don't want to lose any leads, even if I'm busy with, with another client at the moment. So I think there's a delicate balance. And that's, you know, why copywriters get paid so much. And, and there's a whole art to that, because a lot of what we talk about is going to be how do you craft the copy around this and how do you blend features and benefits and problems and solutions? So I don't think there's like a cookie cutter approach, but definitely I wouldn't go on on either of those extremes where you just talk about features or you just talk about benefits. You just mentioned that there uh, there's no cookie cutter solution to this, but did you have any tips for people who are trying to do a better job at this stage? Yeah, so I would certainly you know go back to what people are saying about your product or service because in many cases that's going to be the best source of verbiage or copy that you're going to get inspired from. And I wouldn't say copy it exactly, but you know it better. It's better to start with something that someone else has said, most notably a, a happy customer, that, that would be ideal, than to just start from a, a blank slate. So I always like to start either with you know something that's been mentioned repeatedly in testimonials or in interviews that we do. We try to do a lot of research before we just dig into the, the first draft of a landing page. Or on the other hand, you could also use some of the copywriting frameworks that are out there. There's a lot of good ones out there. There's AIDA, there's PAS, there's, I mean, if you Google copywriting frameworks, there's like probably a hundred different ones and people are coming up with new ones all the time. But my warning would be, don't stick to that framework, you know, word for word. I like to use it as a starting point, but when we get done with with using a framework, you probably won't even realize that, that there was a framework behind it in the first place because you don't want it to sound formulaic. And a lot of these frameworks, especially AIDA, which has been around forever, where it's attention, interest, desire, action. You know, if you're if you've been doing this for a while, you can sort of see how they're using the AIDA framework or PAS. I think you can use it, but don't let it become a crutch. So yeah, frameworks and just looking at reviews and trying to get the actual words of your customers. Those are two examples that I would give for trying to create clarity on your landing page. So at some point, I wonder whether, you know, People will judge if you're a real marketer or not if you've not come up with an acronym for your own copywriting framework. <laughs> you have to come up with your own, yeah. Yeah, that's it. has to be original too somehow. Yeah. The second question off the rank here, what would be the next step? So yeah, so after you answer the clarity question, and again, it's, I wouldn't say it's all linear. Like These are things that are going to be at different parts of your page. So it's not, uh, you know, I just have to answer the clarity question at the top of the page and that's it. You want to continue to be clear in your writing and in your visual design and your layout throughout the page. So these are, I wouldn't say any one of these seven questions is more important than the other, and it's definitely not a specific order. But for clarity, obviously the the top of the page is most important. But assuming that you've answered the clarity question, the next question in the seven question framework is what I call the relevance question. And this one is basically, can it specifically help me? And so when I say it, I'm talking about the offer. So whatever the product is or the service, that's the offer or how it's being conveyed, right? If there's some special mechanism around the offer or whatnot. But the relevance question is basically, how can it specifically help me? Because people want to know what's in it for them. So a, you know, a good example is don't talk about yourself. Don't try not to use the words we or I or us. And I see this happen all the time on websites where the first thing you say is we do this and we do that. And I'm not saying you have to completely remove the words we or I or us from your page, but do an audit and see how many times you mention it and try to cut it down and try to talk more about how you can help the visitor because really that's what they care about 
They don't care that the company was founded, you know, 20 years ago and this is what they do. They care about this is a problem that you have and this is how that problem can be solved. And here are some examples of how this problem has been solved for others, which we get to in one of the other questions, but making the page relevant to not only the visitor, but to the problem that they have that they want to solve. That's going to be how you can try to answer the relevance question. Did you have some examples of how you would communicate the relevance to a reader? Yes. I mean, there's so many different ways you can communicate relevance, but it it really comes down to the copy and the visual design. So uh, another misconception I see people make with landing pages is they focus way too much on just one or the other, right? I've seen, I'm sure we've all seen landing pages that are beautiful, but the copy is kind of weak or one-sided and just vice versa. We see pages that are well-written, but maybe they have too much copy and there's not really a lot of design that's supporting it. So when it comes to making the page relevant to the visitors, we're not just talking about the copy, we're talking about the copy and the design, but really what it comes down to is the offer, right? What is the offer that you're making? And there's different ways to make an offer captivating and this could be a whole nother episode if you, if we wanted to cover it, because I have a whole nother framework for how to create a compelling offer, and there's different elements that go into it. But one nugget that I'll leave listeners with is something that a marketer named Todd Brown talks about called the unique mechanism. And you know, when we look at a page and we look at an offer, one thing that we're thinking is not only how is it relevant to me, but how is it different from everything else that's out there? And so if you can create a unique mechanism behind your offer... So in other words, not just how you're different, but how you convey that difference. How do you execute whatever it is you're providing? Like, uh, let's say that you sell lawn care services. You help, you know, you're, you're a landscaper. If there's a specific way that you fulfill your services so that it is more efficient and you always show up on time and the, the homeowner doesn't have to call every time to get service and there's a certain process you follow, that could be your unique mechanism. And so if you can convey that in a way Not only will that help you differentiate from others, but it'll just create stronger relevance to the visitor because now they can see that, you know, this is something that's going to solve my problem and it's relevant to me and it's different from everything else that's out there. So I think that's one example of how to try to be more relevant to the visitor. I suppose, would an example of this be, I think it's one of those very overdone examples, but the the Domino's 30 minutes or it's free as a unique mechanism, would this be an example or have I misunderstood it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, I mean, there's a lot of pizza places out there. They all deliver pizza, but what Domino's did was they created this unique process behind it and made a special offer. I I think that also talks to the value of creating a compelling offer, right? It's not just order pizza and get it delivered. It's order pizza, get it within 30 minutes, or you get it for free. They sort of combined multiple things there to make a really compelling offer. And it worked for a long time, although I don't think they offer it anymore i guess there was they couldn't keep up with it or something yeah i really missed out i don't think they ever did that policy in australia so i never got to enjoy it but i keep hearing this advertising again again. i remember it yeah back in the early 2000s (laughs) oh you were lucky at least you had it for a while yeah (laughs) what was the uh the third question so the third question in the seven question framework is so there's so there's different ways to convey this one but this this one's a little tricky. I call it the affinity question and of all the seven questions this one is probably the most subconscious, right? This is not something that you're going to just write on the page and create a high level of affinity, but the basics behind it is do I like it? Do I like the brand? Do I like the page design? Do I like the copy? Is it speaking to me? Do I like the offer? And all of that creates a high level of affinity or a low level of affinity. And so the affinity question is all about conveying this sense of 
Either I like it or I don't. And there's some things that are so subtle. For instance, if a page doesn't load quick enough, that's going to create a low level of affinity, right? Because people don't have a lot of patience these days, especially on mobile, when you've got to get something figured out quickly. So you want to do everything you can to just create a, a beautiful brand, a beautiful presentation, and make sure that your page loads quickly, it's easy to use, and that overall people just like it. It doesn't feel scammy. It doesn't feel like you're trying to force someone to buy something right away. I'm sure we've all seen pages that have like the countdown timers everywhere. And it's like, this is your last chance. Like all of that taken to an extreme can create a low level of affinity. So instead, you just want to uh, do the opposite of that and create a really nice user experience for people. The first way I understood that is is uh, a sort of, I guess, a vibe positioning, if you would. So an easy example is, and I think everyone's seen some of the material from someone like Grant Cardone. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine for a lot of people that's off-putting. And for other people, they're like, yeah, this is True. the guy for me. Would that be right. an example or is that not quite? Yeah, absolutely. And this goes back to understanding your audience because, yeah, like I... I kind of like Grant Cardone. I think what he's doing is pretty cool, but I've certainly brought him up in conversations and people have been like, oh, he's always selling something. It's very pushy. Everything's very expensive. It's all the same stuff. I think people feel the same way about like Gary Vaynerchuk, right? right? So yeah, there's definitely uh, an audience for that type of thing. And, and it just comes down to who is that audience and which persona are you talking to with your page? And that's the beauty of landing pages versus websites, which is another question that comes up. Like, what's the difference with a landing page? Usually, if you're doing it right, you have a specific campaign in mind that you're going to use it for. So if I know that I'm going to be serving this landing page to fans of Grant Cardone, I can sort of use that verbiage and create a high level of affinity by sort of mimicking his style without copying it versus if I know someone is anti-Grant Cardone, obviously I'm not going to send them to that page and I might have a secondary page for that. So I think that's one of the biggest benefits of using a landing page versus just sending everyone to your homepage is that you can really dial in on that and you can match the the tone and the offer and everything to that persona. And you should know in advance if there's a, a connection between you know that type of style or, or not. This has been a really big one for me because unfortunately, without real, without investing a lot of time into this, you know, I've done marketing where, you know, it attracts the wrong type of person. And by mm-hmm. simply changing the, the vibe, if you will, the style, yeah. uh, you attract more of a target type of person and can really change a business because suddenly it can make a huge difference. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that. Like when, when we get into AB testing, some of the best AB tests we've ever run for clients has been not even changing anything on the page. It's been changing the audience. Right. Because everyone thinks of A B testing. Oh, I need to change the button color. I need to change the headline. But if you just change the audience, the same page can work completely different. It can just outperform everything you've previously done if you just change the audience. So yeah, that's that's a huge part of this entire process. Might have to do another episode just about that particular <laughs> thing. In the interest yeah. of time. So we've talked about clarity, we've talked about relevance, and then you also talked about courses for courses. Sorry, I'm adding another word on here. But what would you say then is the the fourth question? So the next one's called the influence question. And this one is basically, has it helped others? This one's pretty cut and dry. People want to see that your product or service or brand has helped others solve a problem similar to the problem that they're having. So the easiest way to do this is social proof. A quick example is if you're walking by a restaurant and there's nobody in it, but it's open, you know, you're probably not going to want to go in there because you're wondering, well, they can't be that good if they don't have anybody in there. But if you walk by that same restaurant and you see some activity and it's not overly crowded, 
then you feel more comfortable. Most people would say, you know, that's good. That's it looks like they're they're moving the food. People are enjoying themselves. So the same thing is true with landing pages. You don't want to have a page that is devoid of social proof. And a really good example of this is Basecamp, the project management software. If you go to their homepage, they pretty much put it everywhere. They have different types of social proof. They have some longer form testimonials. I think they even have a page that's like full of testimonials. That's all it is. They also use like statistical social proof that says like, you know, a thousand people signed up for Basecamp in the last week. And all of this is to basically answer this influence question of, hey, this has helped others and now it can help you. So that's the influence question. For Basecamp, I actually think they have a graph even, or maybe that's one version of the landing page that I saw. They have a graph as the background image. Oh yeah, I think I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very cool one. I was going to ask you if you had any other unique examples, because this seems to be a fairly common point, but I'm curious to know if you've seen this done creatively by anybody else. Yeah, there's creative ways to do it. But I think what's even more important is, especially if you're selling like e-commerce products, like direct to consumer is, you know, people are very skeptical these days with reviews. So if there's a way to verify a review or a testimonial, that makes a huge difference. So now there's platforms like Trustpilot, Yachtpo. I think there's some that are exclusive for like the Shopify ecosystem where it's going to be a third party that you submit the review through and then they sort of verify it. And, you know, there's some skepticism still because, you know, it's it's not like they're really crossing the T's and dotting the I's as to where these reviews come from. But it just creates a little more of a, a like a, a trust layer, a, a safety layer. So if you are getting reviews, if you have the opportunity to get them in a verified manner, Google reviews, Yelp reviews, Trustpilot reviews, those types of things, and then display that on the page, that usually will outperform just a regular review that's just, you know, text on the page that's unverified. So that's just something to keep in mind. So we've, we've considered, will this work for me? What would be the next thing for us to look at? Yeah. So the next question is the trust question. This one also is pretty simple. Do I trust it? And as you can see, there's some overlap because we just talked about social proof, but I also mentioned the importance of trusting that social proof and sort of using these verified tools. So it's not like all of these questions live in in isolation of the others. They sort of work together. But the trust question, really, it's about how do you convey trust on the page? And a lot of this comes from the subconscious. So, you know, it, it, does the design of the page give me a sense of trust? Does the brand look trustworthy? Is the page secure? That's an important part of it. Is what's being talked about credible, right? Like, do I really believe what's being said? And then is it reliable? If I sign up for whatever you're offering, or if I put my email address in, or if I make that purchase, am I going to get the product or the service? And ultimately, am I going to get results? All those questions, I, I would group them together as the trust question. And you just need to you know, use different elements to try to answer them. Probably one of the most well-known ways to do this is to use what are called trust signals or trust logos. And we've all seen this where you go to a page and it's like, you know, as used by people at, and then it'll have like very well-known logos. That's like a SaaS example. Or, you know, you want to have uh, certifications or affiliations. This is very popular in the lead gen space. Like if you're selling insurance, you want to show that you are a certified insurance broker or have some other type of here here in the states we have the better business bureau and all of these different logos and seals and each one on their own probably doesn't mean that much but if you have a few of them it adds a little bit more credibility and, and reliability and security to the page that can help you answer that trust question not to uh, put you on the spot here but you mentioned the company logos for a SaaS example did you have any other companies in mind or you know examples of where this was done well 
Yeah, there's there's quite a few. I think uh, it's sort of the the default these days. One that I can think of right away is is Unbounce, which is a landing page builder that I use all the time. They're usually pretty good with showcasing the companies that are using Unbounce on their homepage. But yeah, I mean, pretty much any company that's testing different things, I think they do a really good job. So yeah, that I would say if you want to see an example, probably go check out Unbounce unless they've just changed their page. There's usually some examples of trust logos on that page. Would be unfortunate if they were testing a B version on you. And <laughs> I know, right? You never and they, they test a lot. So that's yeah. fair. That's fair. Got it. So what would we be looking at next? So next, so we covered the trust question. So the next one is the advantage question. And this one also ties back to something we talked about earlier with the unique mechanism and just creating like points of differentiation. But basically the, the question you're trying to answer for the visitor here is, is there something special about it? And again, it is referring to your offer, whatever it is that you're providing. So is there something special? People, you have to remember, people are not looking at your page, product, service, or brand in isolation. They are comparing you against all these other options. And also keep in mind, when, when I, I hear people say, uh, we don't have any competitors, so we don't have to worry about that. But there's always another choice to be made, even if that choice is to do nothing, right? So it's not like, even if you're the only person in your category doing this, which is rare, there's still the choice for someone to say, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to make any purchase. And so you still have to fight against that. So with the the advantage question, you want to convey your unique advantage. And one way to do that is to use a unique mechanism, which I encourage everyone to go check out Todd Brown's video because he explains it a lot better. If you just search Google for Todd Brown unique mechanism, he has like a short video that explains it. But, you know, you don't have to just use a unique unique mechanism. You can use some more um, traditional methods of, of differentiation. And a good example is the vacuum brand Dyson. They created a unique advantage in their product called cyclonic technology. And it's partly a unique mechanism, but it's also partly just a, a unique advantage where at, the, at that point in time, vacuums were all pretty much the same. And they said, hey, we're going to create this cyclonic technology that we're going to put into our vacuum that will not only clean the air so that when the vacuum is running, it's going to pull the particles out of the air, but it's also going to increase the suction power from the vacuum. And there's all this science behind it. And that really helped propel their brand and create this different category. And then on top of that, they made the vacuum actually look a lot different. If you ever see a, a Dyson vacuum compared to everything else that was on the market back when they first came out, it was completely different looking. It was like out of outer space. It was just completely different looking. So those are some ways that they differentiated and became a real category leader with something as simple as vacuums. So just try to think, how can you be different and unique with what you're offering? It's a very interesting one because it, it seems as though understanding the principles relatively straightforward, but actually extracting that out of a product, if it's not already there, it might be a bit of a challenge. Did you have any tips for people on how they might be able to either discover it or, or come up with something? Yes. And that's a really good point. And that goes back to what we had talked about at the beginning, where remember, if you don't have a good product, everything we talk about is not going to work. And we've been in this situation before where we kind of, we, we worked with a client where we just knew that the product was not that good, or there was no points of differentiation that they were aware of that they were communicating to us. And so sometimes it's just, it's not a problem you can solve at the conversion optimization point of the process, right? By that point, it's too late. You need to figure out what is your unique 
selling point, what is your unique advantage or your unique mechanism far earlier in the process before you get to the landing page development side. So typically these days, you know, we will only take on a client if they have some way of conveying their unique advantage or their unique mechanism to us, because it's not something that I think a, a landing page optimizer can solve. It's not impossible, but you know, those are two very different problems, trying to get someone to convert on a landing page versus trying to convey how your product or service is unique. Those are two different problems. And you really should solve that product issue first before you begin working on your landing pages. I have honestly lost track of the number. I think we're on <laughs> number seven, uh, seventh question. Yeah. So the next question is the action question. And this one is, uh, can I easily take action now? So we've all seen buttons on landing pages. A lot of times uh, marketers will refer to them as calls to action or the CTA. And so basically, if you do everything else right up to this point, and you've answered all these other questions for the visitor, you still have to compel the visitor to take that next step. And you have to make it clear and make it enticing and motivate them to take that next step. And so that next step may be to fill out a form, to add something to their cart, to, to make a purchase, to click a button. If you have like a multi-step page, maybe it's just a button click, but sometimes it's a purchase. Sometimes it's a, like an email capture, that type of thing. But all of this is, it's summed up in the action question because you want to make it easy for people to know, what do I need to do next? And when I do this action, what am I going to get? So that's why it's very important to have a call to action in the hero section of your page. Because when people visit that page, they should be able to understand what the page is about and see the sort of the get that clarity question answered. But they should also know, okay, this is what I need to do next. And then another place I like to always have a call to action is at the very bottom of the page, because we've done a lot of heat mapping and session recording research with with real pages. And you know, behavior on landing pages is or, or on websites is very sporadic. But something that we see happen all the time is people will visit a page, they'll scroll to the middle, they'll scroll back up, up and down, up and down. But then they eventually get to the bottom of the page and they sort of sit there for a minute. And if there's no clear call to action, that can lead them to just leave, right? So you want to make sure there's a call to action at the bottom of your page as well. You want to make it very clear. So I wouldn't use buttons that say submit, right? Because that's very... It, it just doesn't sound very friendly. So let people know when they click on this button or fill out this form or add this item to, the, to their cart, this is what's going to happen next. For the call to action buttons, curious to know, I've, I've seen some people make the call to action buttons quite long in that they contain mm -hmm. a lot of, of text. Have you found there to be a big difference between trying to shove a bit more copy into the button versus putting it outside of the button? Getting into the weeds a little bit here, but have you <laughs> noticed a difference? You know, it really, it, it depends case by case. We've tested that. As long as it doesn't say submit, I think the key is you want the button to be a clear indicator of what's going to happen next. So a framework that I like to use when writing button text is I like it to, to complete the sentence of I want to. So I want to get free access, right? I want to, whatever that, whatever makes sense for your product or service, that's typically a good template to use. We don't like using generic button text, like I already said, but yeah, that would be a good test. Although I would be careful when doing A-B tests, like I wouldn't test that type of thing first because with A-B testing, you're limited with how many tests you can run. And again, this could be a whole nother episode, but the most important thing to remember is uh, you can only, you really only should test one variable at a time. And if you're testing button text, that's 
probably not going to get noticed as much as if you were to test, you know, something in the hero section, like a a different headline or changing the way you position your offer. That's a really good test to do. So this would certainly be something you could test, you know, different button text, but I would make sure that you do it in a way where it's going to get noticed. Like I would test button text in the hero section rather than in the footer. And I would only do that after I've tested some of the more typically the the, the better tests that, that we've typically run, which are related to the offer first. Perhaps as a little bit of a teaser then, what, what would you say are the three things that people should really narrow their A-B tests to? So three elements. Yeah, so we actually have a, a framework for that too. I call it FOAM, F-O-A-M. And so the uh, framework stands for, well, the F stands for framework. The O stands for offer. The A stands for audience. And the M is the messaging. And so those are four categories that you could put pretty much any A-B test into. And so they're not in priority order. I just wanted to find an acronym that made sense for it because, hey, we have to always invent our own acronyms. But (laughs) but the most important one that we've run are offer tests. So to give you an example, we do a lot of work in the lead generation space with professional services. So it's a little different than e-com. An example for like a service-based business is, let's say that you're offering a free consultation. You can word it in a different way, or you can, instead of having someone just fill out a form, you could try to get them to book on a calendar so that they feel like they have a specific time chosen. You can change consultation to um, you know a free audit. Like That's something we've tested with our business. Do you want a consultation or do you want a marketing audit? or a conversion audit. So that would be a a change of the offer. Framework, the F, is the layout of the page. So a very common test that we would run for this is if there's a form on the page, uh, maybe it's a single step form with like five form fields, we would split that up. So maybe there's two form fields on the first step and three on the second step. That would be a framework change. And then audience, an audience test, we've already talked about that. That's where the page is exactly the same, but you just send traffic from a different audience So maybe you're testing Google traffic versus Facebook traffic or different segments of Facebook traffic, for instance, and then messaging. That's probably the most common type of test, although I would still run an offer test first. But messaging is where you would change things like the headline, the button text, the copy throughout the page. I wouldn't recommend changing all of that at once, but maybe you say, hey, we're going to do dynamic headlines instead of a static headline where the the headline is different depending on the, the search query that would be a good test that takes advantage of that messaging element. So yeah, FOAM, framework, offer, audience, messaging, those are the four categories that I would try to think about A-B testing with. I'm sure you have a couple of episodes about this type of thing. So I'll I'll put them in the show notes and and get the links from you after. So a couple of uh, rapid fire questions that I'm I'm personally uh, dying to know. Do you see a big difference between long versus short landing pages? Yeah. So this is another good question. I, again, I don't like to have a cookie cutter approach of, Hey, this is how long a page needs to be. But I would say I I almost don't even pay attention to the length of a page anymore, as long as it answers those questions. And this is another way that the seven questions can help you because if you go through that page and you can clearly see that all seven of those questions are being answered, then in most cases, I would say you're good to go and you don't need to make it any longer or shorter. So say someone's got these questions before they've created the landing page, would they mentally go through these questions on a document to start brainstorming or would they build and then reflect and build and reflect? What would be the process here? Yeah, so I always like to start with a document. So like 
when people work with us at Earnworthy, we have an intake questionnaire that has about 20 questions on it because some of them are the more technical questions that are required. But we try to focus a, a, a large part of those 20 intake questions uh, to the seven questions and how do we answer them. So I like to gather everything together, like where do we find your testimonials? What are we going to use for trust logos? How are we going to write the copy around your unique advantage or your unique mechanism? So yeah, I think that makes it so much easier. Just try to dump everything and compile it into one source. Because if you start just building the page from scratch, it's going to get overwhelming. You're going to focus too much on the design. And the design should really support the copy and it should support the way that you're conveying your answers to the seven questions. So you want to answer those questions external before you begin the, the design process, I think. So say you've you've got all this on the on the page, on the working document. Do you ever suggest that marketers, you know, provide a little bit of a um, wireframe to design or is it always best to, to leave it with design to come up with the page? Yeah, I think there's some good standard layouts, although, you know, I, at this point, I don't like to use templates as much. But I remember when I was first getting started with landing page design, you know, there would be certain templates that I think we are all familiar with. I mean, SaaS pages all have a certain look to them. So I, I don't think it's going to help or hurt if you if you feel like you need to use a template. There's a lot of good ones out there. I don't like to say, hey, this is the template you need to use, although I've seen marketers do that. Like this is the template that converts best for courses or for e-com. And then there's also a lot of like for e-commerce, there's a lot of templates already for like a, a Shopify product page that have a, that have been proven to convert well. That's one thing I really like about Shopify for e-commerce is that there's so much data that Shopify and all of these theme developers have already gathered. It, rather than reinvent the wheel, you know, use something that that that's already working. But then, of course, you can still focus on the copy and the other elements that go into that framework. So, you know, the, the template I don't think is as important because you can give me a blank page with, with nothing on it and I could still figure out a way to answer those seven questions in a way that could influence someone to take action. I think that would be a relief for a lot of people listening. Maybe don't feel so artistically inclined. It's good yeah. to know that uh, the templates are actually useful. So how would you go about measuring the improvements that you've made with the questions? So would you go about changing, you, you mentioned the foam framework before, would you basically categorize them in that method and test one of these four FOAM at a time? Or would you suggest a different method? Yeah, it depends where you're starting. So I'll just tell you how, how we typically do it with our agency is if we start a new landing page project, if the current page is just a mess and we can kind of tell having done this for so long, a lot of times we'll just do a complete radical redesign, which means we're going to change everything and we're going to sort of start from scratch. And then we would compare that page against their original page. So you're still going to be able to see if there's a conversion lift or not. And usually there is, but sometimes there isn't. But that way, doing that, that way you, you sort of start from a fresh slate. The downside, though, is you don't know exactly which elements led to that conversion lift. So you just have to chalk it up to this entire radical redesign, improved conversions by, you know, 10% or whatever. After we do that, and after, let's say we have a winning, you know, winning variant and it's working, then we would start using the, the foam framework to say, you know, what's the most important thing that we could test next on that new design or whatever one wins. And we would pick just one thing to isolate. And again, usually it's going to be something related to the offer because that's what's, in my opinion, most important because people want to get something that's worthwhile and valuable. So if we have a way of repositioning the offer or changing how that offer is provided, that would usually be our first test that we would run. But again, you know, 
this is where there's a whole process for A-B testing. And it really comes down to how much traffic are you getting? Because that's going to determine how many tests you can run at any given time. And then you'd want to brainstorm a bunch of ideas for what to test. And then you'd want a, a way of prioritizing what is the most important or most impactful test. And there's frameworks for that that people have created. We've created a framework for that. But the idea is pick the most valuable test, isolate that variable, and then run that against the current version of the page. Bit of a fun one. If you were to pick any SaaS product that you could make a landing page, so a, a dream product, if you will, who would it be for and how would you go about doing it? Yeah, there's there's a lot. You know, We use a lot of SaaS products in the marketing space. I would say one that comes to mind is Typeform, which is a form builder. We've been a user of Typeform for a long time. We embed a lot of Typeforms into our landing page designs. But I feel like they sometimes they don't convey all that you can do with Typeform. And it's such a flexible tool that goes beyond just, you know, forms. Like you can create NPS surveys, net promoter score surveys. You can create quizzes with Typeform. So I would love to eventually (laughs) take a stab at trying to redesign one of Typeform's landing pages to really convey some of those other things that you can do with the product. Putting you on the spot, do you have a hunch as to which one of the seven questions they're probably in need of a little bit more attention? Yeah, I would say probably relevance because I've mentioned Typeform to a lot of our clients. And again, it goes back to features versus benefits and what are we really talking about here? But I feel like there's there's a lot of value in what Typeform provides, but it's not always conveyed. So if we can make it more relevant to people by trying to answer that relevance question, like a good example is NPS, net promoter score. If anyone is not familiar with it, look it up. It's one of the best metrics you can track in your business to see, you know, how are people responding to your products? Do they like it? Do they like your service? And then that can turn into testimonials and social proof, and it can sort of create this amazing flywheel. So a lot of businesses, I I bet they don't know you can use Typeform to create NPS surveys in a very compelling way that can also lead to you getting testimonials. So imagine having a page that really conveys that benefit. I think businesses would love that type of thing. Slight digression, but you've got me really curious now. How can you use Typeform to uh, collect NPS and testimonials at the same time? Yeah, so they they have an NPS template. The thing with NPS that I really like about it is it's a very simple survey. Uh, We've all seen it. Even if you haven't heard the term NPS, Net Promoter Score, you've seen these emails that say, um, would you recommend this product or service to a friend? Or it's how likely are you to to refer this product or service to a friend? And there's a scale of one to 10. So all you have to do is click one button and it gets people into that process. And then you can ask additional questions. And that's the real beauty of NPS is that Yes, you're getting that quantitative answer, but that's not as important, in my opinion, as what comes next. Because then if they answer, you know, seven, you could say, what made you choose seven, right? And then you can gauge what's that qualitative answer, what's that response going to be, because they can type it in. And then you can ask some additional questions if you want to try to get a testimonial, either right there on the spot, or you could follow up with someone later and say, hey, I saw you mentioned XYZ in, in our survey, We'd love to hear more about this. Would you like to jump on a call or do you want to provide a quick testimonial? And so we've done that and it's just been an amazing way to collect some additional information using a multi-step approach using Typeform. I'm definitely going to try this one. Another fun question for you. So say you you got Typeform knocking on your door asking you to redo their landing pages. Apart from your agency, who would you put in your dream team to build this landing page? Oh, <laughs> that's a good one. I've always been a fan of Donald Miller, who's wrote a book called Building a Story Brand. And this was one of the, the first books I read when I was 
really trying to dig into conversion copywriting and, and all of this stuff. It's a really good read. I think he does an amazing job of getting to the core of what a business does. And I think, you know, bringing him in as a, as a copywriter or bringing his team in at StoryBrand, because, you know, copy is one thing, design is another thing. Like to build a landing page, it does take multiple skill sets. You know, I've always tried to balance that, but I'm still trying to improve different areas because you can be a great designer, but you can be a weak copywriter or you can be a great copywriter, but not a good developer. And so you really have to have all of these different skills, uh, including audience research. That's another really important skill, being able to create valuable offers. I think that's a skill on its own. So from a copy perspective, I've always been impressed with what the story brand folks and what Donald Miller has done over there. I I hear you on the offer crafting. That's something that I really struggle with. And I envy the people out there who find that very easy. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, it's probably one of the strongest elements to really focus on. On the other side of the spectrum, who does a really great job of landing pages? So there's a company called Lemonade. I think it's just Lemonade.com. And they don't sell Lemonade. They actually sell insurance. (laughs) (laughs) Funny name. But I I think they do an amazing job in, in a space that is so antiquated. When we think of insurance, you think of this stuffy page from like here in the States, we have Geico, you got State Farm, you got Progressive, all these companies that have been around for a while and their pages are kind of cluttered. If you go to Lemonade.com, it's a very clean experience. And I love how they have a multi-step approach where you just answer one question to get started. And then they take you through this multi-step approach. They have a lot of humor. Like they say something like, we're not the top rated. We are the almost five-star insurance company. So it's sort of this uh, little sense of humility. And they use all of the elements that we've been talking about, like social proof and trust logos and trying to make it stand out with a unique advantage. So I think, yeah, you can learn a lot from Lemonade, at least if you're in the professional services space or the lead generation space. Definitely have to put that in the show notes. And uh, Lemonade, if you're listening, uh, you're welcome to sponsor the episode. (laughs) Curious to know as well, uh, what are some trends that you're seeing in the space? Are you seeing different types of elements being introduced to landing pages that are really making a difference or a certain style that people are going for? Yeah, I would say something that's important from a a design standpoint is focusing on mobile. You know, I'm guilty of this where when I'm doing a landing page audit or talking about a landing page, a lot of times I'm showing the desktop version and I'm si- I'm trying to train myself to really focus on mobile because that's that's where everything's going, especially if you're running any type of paid media. Nine times out of 10, if you're running paid ads, most of your traffic will be mobile. And that is such a different type of experience for visitors. So I encourage everyone, even if you think your landing page looks good because you've seen it on desktop, make sure that you are looking at it and and testing it and gathering data specifically on the mobile version, because that's really what matters. Yeah, there's a, a level of unfun that comes with mobile pages <laughs> because it's a, yeah. it's a single column. Very so limited. All the nice, yeah, yeah, all the formatting is all, you know, it's confusing whether you do all right aligned, all center aligned, yep. some mixed a uh, bit of a pain but uh, i definitely hear you it's a pain Excellent. yeah and, and it's it's a it's harder to get conversions on mobile i mean that's just mm-hmm. a fact because people are not comfortably seated in front seated in front of a a pc you know they are on a usually on the go so it's interesting because you get more traffic on mobile but it's harder to get a conversion so it's a unique challenge and you have a smaller canvas to work with it's an interesting challenge for marketers yeah it's really frustrating i've also heard that the because of the behavior on mobile is completely different to desktop in that if someone's watching video on mobile versus on desktop, say they're on YouTube, their likelihood of converting on the page that they click through is much lower because Mm -hmm. of what you're doing on mobile. 
Just before we go, how can people connect with you and learn more? Yes, you could check out growthmarketer.co. I have a newsletter called Growth Marketing Weekly. It's free. I have a podcast, Growth Marketing Toolbox. You could search for on any podcast platform. And I also have a course that I'm launching, or maybe at the time that this is published, it may already be launched. So you can learn. That's going to be a growth marketing course where I'm going to cover everything that I know about growth marketing in epic detail. So you can learn all about that at growthmarketer.co. Fantastic. I'll be sure to put all the links in the show notes. Uh, They will be extensive. There are a lot of cool things that we mentioned in here. Otherwise, Nicholas, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Take care. 